Keep uh, Revelation chapter 20 open as we come to study this morning verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6. And we're thinking this morning about the millennium. A time when we see Satan thrown down and the saints lifted up. Satan thrown down and the saints lifted up. Well, it is quite remarkable that in God's providence we arrive in Revelation 20 on this particular week. When, as we've been thinking already this morning, war in the Middle East is dominating our headlines. And you may be aware that some Christians are looking at the situation in Israel and claiming that it has huge significance for the end times. You can find probably dozens if not hundreds of videos online of preachers and other Christians making claims about this or that biblical prophecy, this or that event that is perhaps going to happen next, uh, all because of what has happened, the, the horrendous events that have happened this past week in Israel. Some of you maybe aren't aware that this has been happening at all, that, that all, there's been all this speculation and commentary, and you're probably better off, to be honest, because a lot of what is being claimed and speculated about is not particularly helpful. Indeed, some of it is simply ridiculous. But much of it, much of what is being said, is based on how some professing Christians interpret Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20 verses 1 to 10, the words 1,000 years appear five times. Verses 2, 3, 4, 6 and 7. And so quite clearly this is the central picture of this vision. This is uh, the, key, the key idea of this vision. But friends, that's exactly where we need to begin today. By remembering that Revelation is a book of pictures. It's a book that is like no other book in the whole New Testament. And this is the only place, by the way, in the whole New Testament that a thousand years, this reign of a thousand years is mentioned. We were told right back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. This is how the book begins. The revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So right at the start of the book, we were told this is a book that shows us things. And it shows us things in pictures. When we read of a lamb slain but standing in heaven, for example, in Revelation chapter 5. We understand that we are not going to literally see a lamb when we get to heaven. Like the lambs that you see in the fields of County Down. It's a picture describing Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. Similarly, when we read of God sealing 144,000 people in Revelation chapter 7. We understand that that is a picture of God choosing to save the church Before the foundations of the world. It's not that there are literally 144,000 Christians somewhere. Who have special writing on their foreheads. It's a picture. And so the descriptions and the images and the numbers of this book. Are symbolic. And so when we arrive at Revelation chapter 20. And we see this picture of a thousand years. We take that to be a symbolic number as well. And it's interesting actually that there are other. Places in the Bible that they don't specifically mention this thousand years. But they use the number of a thousand years in a sort of a symbolic way. Elsewhere in the Bible and the Psalms and other places. 
Uh, it says that a thousand years are like a day in the sight of God. And so a thousand years is a picture of a long established complete period of time. We've seen already in Revelation that the number 10 symbolizes wholeness or completeness. 1,000 is 10 to the power 3. So a huge but fixed and complete time which has a beginning and an end. But what does this symbolic number of 1,000 years stand for? Well, the answer to that question is perhaps, as I've said already, the most debated point about the whole book of Revelation. Uh, even amongst Reformed Christians, there are different opinions And I just don't have time today. I don't think this is the right context to go into thorough explanations of these opinions. We'll maybe try and do that another time uh, in a midweek or something like that. But I'm just going to tell you today what I think the the thousand years stands for. And then we'll get into the text and hopefully you'll see why we come to the conclusion that we do about it. The interpretation that we go along with. And so I'm going to say to you today, and this is in line with many, many other Reformed commentators, though not all of them, uh, the thousand years in this passage symbolizes the time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. The thousand years is the time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are living in this symbolic millennium now. It began when Jesus completed his earthly ministry. It will come to an end just before his return. And when you consider what we've seen so far in Revelation, this is really not a very surprising interpretation to take. Most of Revelation has been about what is happening now and what will happen between the first and second comings of Jesus. It's also not surprising when you consider that this is what the first readers of Revelation needed to know about. And I think it's Very important to bear that in mind when you hear some of the bizarre things that Christians have been saying this past week, friends. You have to remember that the book of Revelation, it was for people 2,000 years ago just as much as it is for us today. And people 2,000 years ago, the first readers of Revelation, did not need to know about Vladimir Putin or the Iranian Ayatollah and what would be happening 2,000 years after they had died In the nation state of Israel. The first readers of Revelation. Just like us today. They needed reassurance. That in a world of danger. In a world of increasing pressure upon their faith. That Jesus was still. And and will remain in full control. That's what this whole book has been about. And that's what chapter 20 is about as well. In chapter 19, we saw a vision of Jesus finally defeating the beast and the false prophet. Uh, The beast and the false prophet are the political and cultural and religious powers at work in our world. Powers that Satan influences and manipulates and and, uh, who are his agents in this world. And they persecute the church. And chapter chapter 19 finishes with Jesus destroying the beast and the false prophet, throwing them into the lake of fire. But we haven't yet seen Jesus deal with the root of all evil. The root cause of all the evil in our world is Satan, the devil. He's been described several times as the dragon in Revelation. 
And in chapter 20, we see the final defeat of the dragon. We see that he will be judged at the same time and in just the same way as the beast and the false prophet. We'll get to that this evening, God willing. Before we get to Satan's final judgment, we have the picture of the millennium, the time between the first and second comings of Jesus. And there are three things to notice about the millennium itself. We'll deal with just two of them this morning and the last one this evening, uh, along with this evening, the final judgment, which is where Revelation 20 ultimately takes us. So two things about the millennium this morning, and we'll get to the third this evening. First of all, this morning, this picture of the millennium shows us Satan restrained while the gospel advances. Satan restrained while the gospel advances. Look at chapter 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him. What we have here, friends, is a picture of Satan being restrained, of Satan having certain limits put upon him for a certain period of time. Uh, The picture that many preachers use for this is that Satan is like a dog that has been put on a lead. Uh, A dog on a lead can still do certain things. It might even be able to cause quite a bit of harm, but it is limited. It is not able to operate at full capacity. And that's what this picture of the dragon being thrown into a pit symbolizes. It's not that Satan today is literally in a pit. It's not possible for Satan to go into a pit. Satan is a spiritual being. And so he can't be put into a physical pit. Uh, But it's a picture for us of him being restrained in his power. And so we might ask, well, when and how exactly has Satan been restrained? Because we know that he still has, again, like that dog in the lead, some impact upon our world. So in what way has he been restrained? Or how has he been restrained? Well, the New Testament tells us very clearly that Satan had this restraint put upon him through the earthly ministry of Jesus. That the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus has resulted in what the Bible calls the binding of Satan. Listen to what Jesus says, for example, in Matthew chapter 12, Verse 28, Matthew 12, verse 28. Jesus says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Notice the word bind there. It's the same word used here in Revelation 20, verse 2, that the angel bound Satan. So Jesus himself said, friends, I have come to bind Satan, to restrain him from some of the damage that he has been doing in the world. Or listen to what Jesus said in John 12, verse 31. John 12, 31. This is, if you're taking notes, this will be a helpful reference. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, listen to Jesus speaking here, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, in other words, when I'm put on the cross, 
when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So notice the contrast there. Now Jesus says, Satan is cast out. I am lifted up. And what's the result of me being lifted up? All people will be drawn to me. That's through the the proclamation of Jesus' death on the cross. So friends, Jesus himself is very clear. His completion of his work on the earth results in Satan being bound. Satan being restrained. It is something that has happened. He is restrained now because Jesus has finished his work. But that leads to another question. What is it that Satan has been restrained from? What is it that he is not able to do now that he was able to do before the coming of Jesus? Well, we have the answer in Revelation 20, verse 3. Look at the second half of that verse, Revelation 20, verse 3. He's thrown into the pit so that, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. So Satan has been deceiving the nations until the coming of Christ. Now Jesus has restrained him from doing that. So what is happening instead? The gospel is being preached. The gospel is being taken to the nations. And Satan does not have the same power over the nations that once he had to to essentially uh, harden the nations and deceive the nations so much that they don't receive the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. While Satan is restrained, the the gospel is unrestrained. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit whom Jesus Christ has sent to us. The church has been witnessing and thriving and spreading all throughout the millennium and will continue to do so. Think about the world, friends, in the Old Testament era. Think about the Old Testament times. Who in that era really knew and worshipped and loved the living God? Very few people. Very few people. There was the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But even Israel wasn't wholly faithful to God. Yes, there were men like Moses and Joshua, David, the prophets. There were times of revival. But there were also times of terrible idolatry among the Israelites. Even among God's chosen people, there was dreadful sinfulness and immorality and rebellion to the point where God gave Israel up. Israel as a kingdom lost its power. They went into exile and so on. And beyond the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, it was even worse. Very few people from other nations came to know the God of Israel, to worship the God of Israel in the Old Testament era. Ruth, Rahab, the odd one here or there, a few more dozen or hundred during the reigns of David and Solomon. But friends, almost entirely, the nations in the Old Testament were deceived by Satan. He started his deception right at the beginning. What was it that Eve said when God confronted her and Adam? The serpent deceived me and I ate. And we studied the early chapters of Genesis last year and we saw Satan's deception of the nations continue down through the line of Cain. You remember uh, the the men coming together to build the Tower of Babel. 
in arrogant rebellion against God. And that rebellion just continued down through the generations. The nation of Israel was supposed to be a light for all the nations. A witness for the nations to come and to worship their God. And take part in the covenant blessings that he gave to Israel. But Israel failed in that task. The nations were deceived by Satan. And yet... All throughout the Old Testament era, what did God promise through his prophets? Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The coming of Christ, friends, restrains Satan. It lifts the darkness of his deception upon the nations. And instead of that deception, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings light to the nations. Remember what Jesus' disciples reported to him after he had sent them out to preach about the kingdom. Luke chapter 10 verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus responds by saying, verse 18, I saw Satan fall. Like lightning from heaven. He's bound. He's restrained. So that the servants of Christ can go about the work that he has given us. Of bringing the gospel to the nations. Knowing as we do so as Jesus himself said. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. They cannot stop the spread of the gospel. Because Satan is bound. During this millennium. And so friends this is to be so motivating and encouraging for the task the church has today. Some of our fellow Christians, some of our fellow reformed Christians would say that this millennium, this this great time when Satan is bound and the gospel advances, uh, some of our brothers would say it hasn't come yet. They would say of course yes the gospel has been preached for 2,000 years already. It's made great progress at times. But the millennium is some future time when the gospel will have even more of an impact. Our understanding of the millennium doesn't rule out greater blessing to come in the future. But it also recognizes the fact that the gospel has had already an incredible impact since the resurrection of Jesus. Again, think about it from the perspective of the first readers of this book. Those little churches of a few dozen people maybe scattered across what is now the land of Turkey. Think about how far the gospel had gone in their day. Jerusalem, Judea, parts of the Mediterranean, parts of North Africa, Greece. That was about it at the time when Revelation was first written. It would have been almost impossible for the first readers of this book To imagine how far the gospel has gone since then. Australia has heard the gospel. Brazil has heard the gospel. South Africa. Tiny little islands in the vast Pacific Ocean. People in China. Even people in North Korea. I'm not saying that the work is finished. We know it isn't finished. We know there are thousands of people groups who still need to hear the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. But friends, millions, if not billions, already have for the past 2,000 years. 
More Jewish people are hearing the gospel today than have heard it perhaps for decades. And by the way, just remember if you do, again, stumble across Christian videos or books claiming this or that about Israel, it is the gospel that the Jewish people need. The same gospel that everybody else needs. They do not need another temple in Jerusalem. They do not need to start offering animal sacrifices again via human priests again. They need to hear the good news that the son of David, their Messiah, their scriptures promise. And that all their tradition and and the best parts of their religion uh, point forward to that he has come. That it is his blood alone that redeems Israel. Redeems the Jew and the Gentile from all their sin. But today more Jewish people have heard that message and are hearing that message than for generations. Because Satan is bound. Bible translation is going on more than ever before for hundreds more languages to hear about Jesus because Satan is bound. I mentioned before we were in Keswick on our holidays in the summer. Went into this huge big former warehouse where the convention was being held. The room was just full of mission agencies from all over the world. Wonderful organizations taking the gospel to people in South America and Africa and all over the place because Satan is bound. And our own little church sending missionaries to Seville in Spain or to northwest France or right down in Limerick, the southwest corner of Ireland and of Europe. And in all those places, friends, the gospel is unbound while Satan is bound. And that wonderful reality should motivate us to give and to go and to pray for the further spread of the gospel. As you pack your Blytheswood shoeboxes with their passages of scripture inside them, remember this, that Satan is bound so that that scripture can do more than you might ask or think. And as we pray, yes, for Christian missionaries to Jewish people, we pray expectantly. As we pray for our own witness or the witness of the church around the world, whether in Dremore or further afield, we pray expectantly. Revelation 20 spurs us on because Satan is bound whilst the gospel is unbound. And the gates of hell cannot prevail as we carry out the great commission that our king has given us. So as we look at the picture of the millennium, we see firstly Satan restrained while the gospel advances. But we see secondly and lastly just for this morning. We see Satan restrained while the saints reign. Satan restrained while the saints reign. And of course the saints reign with Christ. Uh, Notice that Revelation 20 begins with the angel coming down from heaven in verse 1. We're looking into heaven again in verse 4. So heaven is at the beginning of the passage And we have reason to believe we're looking into heaven again in verse 4. Look what verse 4 says. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. This is reminding us of things that we saw earlier in the book, friends, that just as God has marked out those who belong to him, spiritually speaking, so also those who continue to worship idols, who are taken up with false religions, who do not repent of sin, they have the mark of the beast upon them. 
uh, and they ultimately uh, are not Christ's people. And so he's saying here that those who refuse to worship the beast, they end up in heaven. They came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There are a couple of details here that confirm that John is seeing a vision of heaven. Uh, It's important to emphasize this because other interpretations take a different view. Uh, But a couple of reasons why verses 4 to 6 were looking into heaven. First of all, we know that John is seeing heaven here because that's where Christ is today. Jesus today is seated in heaven. He reigns as king of kings in heaven. So these people who John sees reigning with him are obviously also in heaven. Secondly, we know that John sees the saints in heaven because he sees the souls of those who have been martyred for their faith and who did not worship the beast and so on. Where do souls of believers go? They go to heaven. As our catechism says, they immediately pass into glory and are made perfect. They go to be with Christ. Now we're told here that John specifically sees the souls of martyred Christians. That's symbolized by the fact that they've been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. But it also says that he sees those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And so we're right to remember, of course, that all Christians go immediately to heaven. Their souls go to heaven, whether they were literally, physically martyred for their faith or not. The important point is that you remain faithful to Christ unto death, whether that death is martyrdom, whether you die having withstood the pressures, economic pressures or social pressures of one kind or another that were brought to bear upon your faith, kinds of things that were mentioned Uh, in the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. In other words, friends, the point is not so much how these saints in heaven have died. The point is that they remained faithful to Jesus until the end of their lives. And so afterwards they go to be with Christ in heaven. But notice their position in heaven. Verse 4. They were seated on thrones. They were seated on thrones and they have been given authority to judge. Verse 5 says they reign with Christ for a thousand years. And this is another picture, friends, that would have been such a precious comfort to the first readers of Revelation as it is to us who read Revelation today. John's first readers were wondering, what has happened to my deceased believing father? Or mother, or spouse, or brother, or sister? What has happened to those of our fellow Christians who were forced out of a job for their faith, or who were taken away to prison, or who were perhaps even put to death for their faith? What's happened to them? They've died, but Jesus hasn't come back yet. Have their enemies won? Does God not care? Is justice never going to be done? Revelation chapter 20 fills them with hope. Your departed loved ones are alive. Their bodies are in the ground waiting for their resurrection. But their souls are in glory. Their souls are in glory. Reigning with Christ. John calls it the first resurrection in verse 5. That's the only time that phrase is used in the whole New Testament. What does he mean by that? Well, the New Testament describes Christians as being born again. That 
a spiritual resurrection has already taken place in you if you're united to Jesus Christ by faith. So unless Jesus returns first, your soul continues in that new spiritual life that you have, that first resurrection. John says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so the first resurrection is that spiritual resurrection. It's that resurrection that takes place when the Holy Spirit regenerates us and unites us to Christ by faith. And it, and it, includes, it includes our going to heaven spiritually to be with Christ in glory, where we reign with him until the millennium is finished, until it's time for Christ to return and for the final resurrection and judgment. And so, dear Christian friends, this morning, do you know and do you think about the fact that this is the experience of your departed fellow Christians today? Here's the picture Revelation wants you to have of your departed loved one sitting on a throne, reigning with Christ, judging with Christ, vindicated against all the accusations and temptations and persecutions that Satan tried to bring against them. They're in glory. They are safe with Jesus and they will stay safe with Jesus until the thousand years is over and Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. How encouraging is this, friends? Some of you, your parents or your grandparents have gone ahead of you to glory. Some of you, your spouse, your spouse of decades has gone ahead of you to glory. Some of you, it might even be a child, born or unborn. Some of you lost a friend when they were only young. Some of you pray regularly for Christians persecuted to death in other parts of the world. You pray for their bereaved families. You think about the grief and the pain that they must go through considering all that they have endured. Let this comfort you as you think of those who have died. They reign with Christ. They see better than ever now their great enemy, the dragon who hated them and pursued them through their time on earth. They see him bound now and they know that he will be defeated in the end. Think of what the psalmist says. We sang it earlier in Psalm 16 verses 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That was the experience of the Lord Jesus following his death on the cross for three days. He was in paradise before the resurrection of his body. And that is the experience of our loved ones who died in the faith even now. Their souls are safe. They are with Christ. They're enjoying the pleasures of heaven. They sit in judgment over their enemies. And this is why, Christian friend, you have no need to fear death. You've no need to fear illness or even the hatred of this world. This is why if you get sacked for holding the Christian principles, or even if you go off to the mission field and get beheaded for Christian principles, for preaching the gospel, you have nothing to fear. There is a throne 
waiting for you. There is peace waiting for you. There is the rest and the joy of heaven and Christ waiting for you. What a comfort as we go on through this millennium together. And so here are the first two things that this vision of the millennium shows us. It shows us that Satan has been restrained while the gospel is unrestrained. While the gospel advances. The gospel through the witness of the church is spreading to all the nations of the earth. Just as Jesus said it would. And while it goes out, those believers who have died having remained faithful to Jesus. Their souls are now with Jesus. As we will be too if we remain faithful. And if you don't yet know Jesus as Saviour and Lord, this vision of the millennium warns you that right now is your opportunity. This is a symbolic period of time. We don't know when it will come to an end. We'll see tonight just how much you have to lose if you're not ready for the return of Christ at the end of this millennium. This millennium is your opportunity today to repent of sin To cry out to this lamb who is reigning in glory today but who is coming back to this earth one day. Cry out to him to be saved from your sins. He is coming soon to judge the living and the dead. Before he does, bow your knee to him. Pledge allegiance to him. And he will invite you to one day reign alongside him.